But first we're going to look at a bizarre story that sits at the nexus of both America's obsession with physical beauty and their high rates of incarceration. From the 1920s to the 1990s, around half a million prisoners underwent plastic surgery in America's prisons. Half a million. They had plastic surgery to improve their appearance in the belief that in doing so, it would improve their chances of rehabilitation from a life of crime. Or as it was said in one newspaper of the time, handsome does as handsome is, becomes a newer guide, and criminals to be reformed must first be beautified. Now, this practice, of course, raises many ethical questions. Freelance journalist and now author Zara Stone tells the story of how the practice of plastic surgery for prisoners started, whether it actually worked, and why it is no longer practised. Her book is called Killer Looks, the Forgotten History of Plastic Surgery in Prisons, and it's published by Prometheus Books. I spoke to Zara Stone from her home in San Francisco. Welcome to our little wireless program. Hi, thank you for having me. Decades ago, we did a story on what I think is pretty much the birth of plastic surgery during the First World War when, of course, doctors were involved in patching up uh, wounded soldiers. But you say it then went two separate paths. Absolutely. So, you know, at this period of time, plastic surgery was really not very well regarded. Like prior to the world wars, um, surgeons who worked in this field were considered kind of disreputable. Um, In America, they weren't allowed access to the American Medical Association. And the real idea was that if you were a doctor, you shouldn't be concerned about people's vanity. You should really be focused more on their health. And so as this field developed, again, you know, with the world wars and people coming back with all these injuries, plastic surgeons really started to build up their profile. And at one segment of them, they decided to kind of go, you know, the professional route. So they would write papers and they would do research studies and they really tried to impart a certain level of gravitas to what they were doing. But then we also had this other cohort And they decided they weren't so interested in, you know, kind of professional approval, where they really thought they would make their money was with public approval. So they took really like more of a showmanship approach to plastic surgery. And some of that does overlap with a prison surgery in a really interesting way. Which we shall explore shortly. Does the idea that appearance and criminality are connected come from the eugenics movement? Uh, There's definitely some overlap there and with the idea that, you know, certain traits can be inherited, such as criminality, and then we have all those, you know, horrible, famous eugenicists who would map the skull and be like, oh, well, if you have a pointed chin, you're more likely to be a thief, or if your eyes are together, you're a rapist, and all this you know, this absolute crock of science, which wasn't science at the time. And some of this certainly in the early days got conflated. And especially because people who were locked up were, you know, generally people of considered other or of foreign origin or who had things that people at the time didn't really agree with. And so in those kind of situations, kind of changing somebody's face, it sort of changed the idea of 
who they were as a person, kind of under the inherited criminality banner in terms of looks. In the past, we've done programs on how the eugenics movement in the US inspired Hitler back in uh, back in Germany. So, okay, let's uh, let's look at the link between success and attractiveness, so-called appearance bias. Yeah, and appearance bias, or I think one of the ways they're calling it now lookism, it's really the idea about discriminating against someone purely based on what they look like. And this goes into all sorts of different fields, but it's really, again, it's ascribing these kinds of moral judgments just based on somebody's face. So, for example, you have a scar, facial scar, so you could be like, well, you're more likely to be violent. And just all these Um, associations which aren't really true but which kind of unconsciously bias people against people again who kind of are considered other and have this kind of permeates throughout our entire life Um, I mean it will have affected you I'm sure it's affected me as a woman Um, just the way we look in terms of how people respond to us kind of yeah as you point out teachers uh, pay more attention to attractive kids and attractive people are more likely to be given attractive jobs. Yeah, and it's kind of really shocking because I would say most teachers would have be horrified to hear that they're doing this from an early age, but their data is there. Like there is so many studies to back this up. So, you know, teachers, they will put, spend more time with attractive children. Um, if the attractive children are boisterous, they'll be called high-spirited. Mm. Or if they're less attractive, they'll be called troubled. And all the way through school, attractive kids, they will get better grades. Even in university, this happens. So this really kind of, you know, you're giving people this feedback their entire life that if you're considered more attractive, these are just the benefits. And and you also cite that in courts, attractive people got lesser sentences. It's true. Uh, not so much when it's a jury trial, but with judges, uh, the data is pretty solid on that. Um, they will get, you know, smaller fines, um, smaller convictions. Um, I think there's a couple of exceptions if the crime in um, that we're talking about is one where it's considered more like swindling or fraud so or somebody is a sex worker in that case actually being considered more attractive works against you and I think there's kind of you know the reverse beauty bias at work where they're like well you being attractive means you've been more successful as a swindler or a sex worker. Okay, enter stage writer, plastic surgeon called Dr John Crumb. Tell me about his work on Alice. So Dr Crumb, um, I think he was originally from Chicago and he moved to New York City in the 1930s. And he epitomizes the kind of surgeon that was disreputable and showman-like and quackish. And so Crumb really believed in the idea of what we want to say with air quotes, social medicine, that changing the face could in some way reshape the personality. So in 1932, uh, he put on this really large spectacle at the Hotel Pennsylvania in Manhattan, New York City. So around a thousand people turned up. These were all people who were, you know, attending this beauty shop convention and they filtered in to this really large ballroom. Uh, There were black drapes hanging, there were flowers, there was a string quartet in one corner. 
And it was all very dramatic. And then, you know, then kind of it goes dark and a spotlight beams out. And Dr. Crumb, he kind of strides onto the stage in a lab coat. And he like makes this big announcement. Tonight, you're going to see something special. You're going to see a personality reform. And he made this incredibly grandiose. And then we meet Alice. And Alice, uh, she walks in. She's a short woman. Her eyes are concealed behind a little mask. And as she walks towards him, you can see that, you know, she's kind of in her like late 40s, early 50s. And she just, you know, doesn't have a spring in her step of a 20 year old. And so she sits down in the middle of a stage where we have this big chair and Dr. Crumb, he points to her and he gives everybody her backstory. He's like, this is Alice. She has been in prison for 20 years for killing her husband. And so we have, you know, the audience gasps and there's a little bit of shock going on. And he's like, and now she's out. She's paid her debt to society. And what we really want to do is help her get a job. And Alice, before she went to prison, her career was in beauty. But since she's been released, she has found it impossible to get a job. And then, you know, at this point, he like touches her face and he like moves her cheek. And he's like, these are the lines of aging and crime that are now in her face. And we need to get rid of them for her to be able to succeed. And then over the next, I think, two hours, seven minutes, he gives Alice a facelift. Uh, he gets his scalpel out. He has his ammonia. He injects her with Novocaine. Uh, the orchestra, they play a bunch of, you know, songs which he selected. So the songs are stuff like uh, there's Good Night, Sweetheart. There is uh, Sweet and Lovely. There's How Long Will It Last? You know, like really kind of cliche stuff because this is just the kind of guy he was. He kind of really likes setting this up. I mean, there was a smell of blood in the audience. I think a couple of people fainted and had to be ushered out. And then he kind of turns her back to face everybody. And, you know, she's swollen and she has bandages, but, you know, the lines and the grooves are gone from her face. And he's like, meet Alice. This is the new improved version. And afterwards, um, he's like, now she can go, she can get a job, she can succeed. And we never actually hear about her again, which suggests that actually she did manage to go on and, you know, have a new life as she wanted it. Sarah, now introduce us to Dr. Michael Lewin. So Dr. Michael Lewin was a plastic surgeon in New York City, uh, and he was originally from Poland. So he immigrated uh, during the World War, leaving his whole of his family behind because he wasn't able to practice medicine there at the time. And actually, he never saw his family again. You know, really sadly, they kind of died in a ghetto. So you have this young plastic surgeon in New York City and, you know, he doesn't speak the language particularly well. He's not very rich. And he's really seeing the whole time how people react to him, um, you know, and he's obviously he is in better circumstances than other people. Like he's white, he's male, he's tall, but he, he's poor. And he really sees that he's kind of treated as a second class citizen. And this is one of these kind of formative experiences that went on to drive his work as he got older. And again, like Dr. Lewin is one of the people who really helped set up these prison plastic surgery programs as we have heard of them today. So he gets a letter from Sing Sing Prison. Tell us the story of William Ritchie. Uh, so William Ritchie, uh, I think when he contacted Dr. Lewin, he was 23 years old. 
And he actually had a history with Dr. Lewin. So uh, Richie was born with kind of a cleft palate and had been having a number of surgeries on his face for the last couple of years to kind of try and fix it. You know, back then it was really a a number of kind of steps in order to get the effect he wanted. But he didn't really like having surgery, you know, as teenagers don't. And he skipped a lot of appointments. And then he, you know, from Dr. Lewin's side, he just vanished. But on Ricky's side, uh, he'd been living in New York and he'd had a lot of teasing from all of his friends because of his appearance in high school. You know, he was shunned even when he was working, people would be rude about it. And then on New Year's Eve one year, um, you know, he's partying, he's having a drink, he's just trying to relax. And one of his friends just started, starts making, you know, fun about his face and like making stupid expressions. And Ricky kind of snaps, like he pulls out a gun, he shoots him. And then he gets arrested and gets, you know, shuttled off to Sing Sing. And when he contacts Dr. Lewin, like what he really says is like, I know this was bad. I'm, I'm owning my mistake, but I just want to look normal. I don't want to be in a situation where this happens to me again. And Dr. Lewin, you know, he, at this point, you know, he'd never been to a prison. He didn't understand anything about the carceral system, but he really wanted to help Ricky. And so, you know, he headed up to Sing Sing, kind of went through all the different checks and he met Ricky and he saw that he really did want to reform and reshape. And he was like, okay, if a warden lets me, I'm going to come here and I'm going to operate on you. And the warden, um, he was not particularly friendly, but he was like, as long as this doesn't cost me anything, sure, go ahead. And so, you know, over the next two years, um, Lewin would come to Sing Sing pretty regularly and operate on Ricky. And while he was there, he saw everybody around him and he saw, you know, people with, you know, broken noses, facial scars, like many things which I think would be classed under disfigurements. And he realized that this is something where I could see how this could affect their lives. And, you know, these might be drivers like Ricky to help them commit crimes or just help is not the wrong word, but drivers of might be why they have committed crimes. And he really wanted to see if he could help them. And again, uh, the warden was like, yes, that's fine. I just don't want it to cost me anything. And at this point, Dr. Lewin, he'd kind of risen up the surgery ranks till he was running a plastic surgery program. And so this is where he got his residents involved. And they really started heading up to Sing Sing, you know, maybe two days or two afternoons a week. And they would do faceless and eyeless and nose jobs, um, pr pretty much anything that, you know, was wanted and they thought was medically necessary or could be helpful. And this just became a very regular occurrence. My guest on telling this remarkable story is Zara Stone and her book is called Killer Looks. The Forgotten History of Plastic Surgery in Prisons, no longer forgotten, thanks to Zara. So many hundreds, well, 1,400 prisoners applied to be part of the program and, as you say, the most popular uh, requirements were nose jobs, scar removals, tats also, I guess. Absolutely. And I mean, I think we all have the idea that tattoos connote a certain lifestyle and especially when they're related to gangs, or I think there were also quite a number of swastikas that were removed and other crude drawings. And, you know, I guess the idea is that by getting rid of these kinds of, you know, stigmatized signs, which, you know, stigmatized for very valid reasons, it again enables people to be able to get more employment. 
And recidivism is such a huge thing. I, like, I think the numbers then and now is something like 70% of people like reoffend within five years. And anything that can really drop that number is really was really valued, especially at that time when they were kind of going through this wave of kind of social medicine. I'm interested in uh, in the chin, both uh, the problematic motivational guy, uh, Tony Robbins, and indeed John DeLorean were worried about their weak chins and had chin jobs. It was once again pretty common in prisons because weak chins were accepted as evidence of weakness of character. Uh, yeah, I mean, this kind of ties into, you know, kind of the eugenics philosophy. I think like Cesare Lombroso, uh, he was the guy who he would, be, he was an Italian man and he liked to measure people's skulls and kind of decide, you know, what traits correlated to certain, in his mind, atavistic personalities. And so that the weak chin would be one of them. I think the, like, the large brow was another. And a lot of these, again, at the time, kind of conflated to sort of like Southern Italian features, um, you know, and there was this really big disregard for people. And so in America, you know, during this period with all kind of the Immigration Act and like not being able to elect as many people in, kind of having this like, you know, guidebook to like, oh, he has a weak chin, he has a bad brow, this means he's a bad guy. It was mm. kind of shorthand for racism, really. Well, surgery did reduce recidivism with 30% reoffending compared to the control group, which was 56%. What do you, how do you interpret that? Was it, uh, did the prisoner feel better about themselves or did it actually improve the way in which they were treated? I think it's really a... Uh, I think it's a mixture of both of these things. Um, the way people respond to you and react to you, um, that really can boost self-esteem. And, you know, if people also are reluctant, say, to hire somebody with a criminal record, um, which makes them even more reluctant to hire somebody who's unattractive and with a criminal record. So one way would be that looking more attractive just smooths things a little bit when people get released and try and reintegrate. And the other thing is on a personal level, uh, feeling better about yourself is a really good thing. And, you know, I think there's the argument, like, does it matter if you're more attractive if, for example, you're on a life sentence? Because in some cases, um, people with life sentences got plastic surgery. And I think the argument was generally, yes, that even if you will never be released from prison to get a job, um, if you feel better about yourself, you will be less disruptive. I'm less likely to argue with people, and this really just makes it more pleasant for everyone. Zara, both black and white prisoners were offered plastic surgery? Uh, they were, and they kind of varied from place to place because, uh, you know, I think by the closure of these programs, they were in around, I think, 44 states and a number of federal prisons. So, um, you know, on the surface, yes, it was open to black and white prisoners. Um, but I think in reality, you know, in some specific places, uh, the white prisoners vastly outnumbered the black ones. Um, I think, for example, I'm trying to remember, I think it might have been in Tennessee, where I think it was like one in 10 of the prisoners who received plastic surgery was black, despite something them being around maybe 60% of the incarcerated population. And I understand were, that women were also included in the uh, 
plastic surgery project up to and including breast implants? Uh, yes, so the plastic surgery did include breast implants. Uh, the one that Dr. Lewin was involved with, um, he was involved at Sing Sing, which is a men's prison, and he was also involved with the Rikers Island um, jail prison, which is in New York City, um, but also within that whole jail complex, there was the Women's House of Detention. But more broadly across the states, um, you know, the, these plastic surgeries were offered more to men than to women, which is partly because, you know, there were more men imprisoned and partly due to the fact of kind of, you know, everyday sexism, well, it's more important to fix up the men than the women. But from the women that did receive this, uh, breast implants were pretty common. Uh, there was a prison in Utah where um, I think almost all the women got breast implants every year. And it was a little bit of a scandal because many of them felt they weren't really educated enough about what that meant and some of them kind of reported you know oozing and other kind of wound problems which eventually led to the program shutdown. One of my favorite guests decades ago was uh, Jessica Mitford, very active in prison reform and she went undercover to investigate conditions inside women's prisons for her book Kind and Usual Punishment. Uh, yeah, and I'm, it's so exciting you've met her. She's kind of a hero of mine. And so Jessica, uh, what she did, and this I think was in Washington, D.C., and they were kind of the prisons were sort of doing an outreach to try and make people, you know, authorities and journalists understand what was going on. But whereas today, you know, maybe you would go on a sanctioned visit and it would all be very proper, uh, back in the 70s, um, she was handcuffed. She was put in the back of a police van. She was strip searched, you know, the whole like, you know, cough and squat kind of thing. And then she was locked into a cell with another prisoner. Um, there were no kind of guards watching to check she was okay. It wasn't sanitized. And she really got to see firsthand quite how deplorable the conditions were, you know, how small the cells were, how there was, you know, very little psychiatry offered, how the options and education were just extremely limited. And her experience was um, very eye-opening at the time. So much to talk about, so little time. Why did plastic surgery for prisoners eventually end? Uh, I think with everything, it's a combination of reasons. But kind of the largest ones would be kind of a political shift and the public outrage. And so the public outrage would be, and these programs were never hidden per se, they just weren't particularly advertised. And so, you know, every couple of years, a journalist would come along and he would do a expose. And in 1989 in Houston, a journalist called Stephen Long, he kind of got a tip off that these plastic surgeries were happening at the prison. And he kind of, he tried to get all the information and he was given the runaround and, you know, journalists, this makes them more stubborn. And the report that he came out with, um, he, I think he found something like $12,000 was spent on this one prisoner to give him a facelift and an eye lift. And this was a guy with a 20-year record as a sex trafficker. Um, there was a, um, a woman who she'd committed murder and had many other offenses. She was given an eye lift. Like it was just a list after list of people who got surgery and the offenses they committed. And there was this immediate like backlash, like the governor got in touch. Um, people wrote a bunch of letters. You know, people were on talk shows saying that I can't believe my public money is going to fund these, you know, vanity surgeries. 
and also very upset because this wasn't something they could get for free. You know, these were expensive, desirable operations and almost being awarded to people they considered had, you know, worked against society. Sarah, I'll have to let you go because Netflix will be phoning at any minute. This, <laughs> this has to be a Netflix series. I've been talking to the wonderful Zara Stone, author of Killer Looks, The Forgotten History of Plastic Surgery in Prisons, published by Prometheus. Thanks very much, Zara. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.